So today we come to our third message in this series called Curator, Repairing the Damaged Frames. We've been using this picture as kind of a prop to illustrate the fact that when we come to the scriptures, there's different portraits of Jesus that is given in the Gospels. And what we are trying to do is sort through what it's actually telling us. We carry a lot of assumptions about Jesus when we open the Gospels and we read about his life. And there are certainly parts of his life that we enjoy. It comforts us. It challenges us. But there are certain parts in the Gospels that we don't know what to do with. And so today, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about the warnings of Jesus. So let me remind you, over the last two weeks, we talked about the temptation of Jesus Uh, Satan comes, the devil, the tempter, to try to take his identity away from him. And then last week we talked about the transfiguration of Jesus, and we talked a little bit about how Jesus, appearing before uh, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he appears in a glorified state with Moses and Elijah, and the message is telling us that that Moses and Elijah had their place in God's redemptive story, but Jesus has replaced that with a greater vision, okay? So now we come to the warnings of Jesus, and here's where people sometimes make a mistake. So if you've been in religious circles for any length of time, you'll read certain parts of the Gospels and you read what Jesus is saying, like the short little paragraph that I read earlier, and you begin to think about kind of end times as kind of an apocalyptic prediction of the end of the earth, okay? So if you have been in Christianity uh, for any length of time and have heard a number of sermons, you'll find that some of the passages out of the Gospels are taken to be a uh, prediction for the end of the world. And what I want to do is reframe that for you a little bit here this morning. While the warnings of Jesus do have huge implications for us in the 21st century, most of what he is saying in his warnings is directed to people that are living in the first century and in their circumstances. Certainly, we can learn from them, and we can grow from them, and we can be cautious of what we're doing uh, in our lives and in a society um, that could make a lot of wrong decisions. But having said that, uh, a lot of times we take it to an nth degree, and we inflate it in such a way that it becomes good material for apocalyptic genre. Now, if you're familiar with that genre, you'll know there's a lot of books and there's a lot of movies that have kind of an apocalyptic theme to it, kind of the end of the world as we know it type thing. And sometimes verses out of the Gospels are used in a way to kind of reinforce that. So a lot of times what we think of in terms of what awaits us into the future is the continued a war and perpetual violence that we think is being predicted by Jesus. But what I want to do today is I want to take a look at two passages of Scripture. I read the first one in the call to worship, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, or, or Sermon on the Plain, rather, in the Gospel of Luke, and the second one in this little paragraph in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. 
So keep those kind of handy. We're going to look at those in a moment. So one of the things that Jesus is doing in his earthly ministry is carrying out the ministry of a prophet. So when we think of the life of Jesus, he is a prophet, he's a priest, and he is a king. There's a designation, kind of three offices that he holds simultaneously. And one of those offices comes out of the school of the prophets that is found in the Old Testament. Now in the Old Testament, people that were called by God to say something to their society, their contemporary community, were called prophets. Uh, God empowered them and gave to them insight as to what is going to happen in light of what they're doing in the social circles of their day. What a, a lot of people assume, and I think it's a wrong assumption, is that the prophets of the Old Testament are fortune tellers. They predict the future. And certainly there's some passages of scripture that hint to something to be fulfilled later on. However, most of the time the prophets are speaking to their community. They're speaking to their times. And I think that's important to understand what Jesus is doing as well. In his office as a prophet, he is concerned about his Jewish people and he is concerned about the land that they loved. He is also concerned about the temple that they used to worship God. Now, as they are in a, under oppression to the Romans, all three of those things are in jeopardy. And what I mean by that is they are an oppressed people. They could possibly lose their Jewish identity if they intermarry, if, they, if it gets watered down. Secondly, They've already, to a certain extent, lost the land that they loved. It was being held in Roman power. And as we're going to see today, the temple was always in jeopardy as well. Because the temple was seen to be kind of the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. And eventually the Romans will decide that they got to get that out of the way if they're going to continue to rule the Jewish people. I'll come back to that in a moment. When you look at the longer discourses of Jesus and some of the warnings that he gives, like Matthew chapter 24, it's almost as though he's giving some perpetual warnings to them that there is disaster for the Jewish people on the horizon unless they repent. And that's a key word, unless they repent. So let's think about perpetual warnings for a couple of moments in our own day and age. You have them all the time in front of you. Don't drink and drive. That's a perpetual warning you see all the time. Don't drink and drive. Secondly, click it or ticket, right? Okay, you see that all the time. It's a perpetual warning. Thirdly, smoking is hazardous to your health. Okay, you hear that all the time. Now, the one that we have been listening repeatedly over the last two years has been Remember to wear your mask, stand six feet, and wash your hands. Repeated perpetual warning, okay? So how many times have you heard that over the last two years? Hundreds and hundreds of times, right? So what do you think people do with these perpetual warnings? Well, some people heed them, right? But some people ignore them. They just ignore them, or maybe they try to change them, 
or they throw a hissy fit and produce a convoy to back up traffic for miles and miles and miles, okay? So there's different ways that people respond to these perpetual warnings. They don't like the rule, so they want to change the rule, uh, or they're just going to ignore the rule. But perpetual warnings are there, to a certain extent, to try to protect us from something. Now, whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, at least that's the motivation of it. The perpetual warnings of Jesus are not to scare us into submission, but to challenge our assumptions on certain things. The warnings are instructive, if I can put it that way. No matter who we are, Jesus will challenge our assumptions. That's all you got to do, and you reading in the Gospels, you'll find Jesus challenges our assumptions. And he says, repent. Now, that's a word that has been given a lot of bad press in churches. A lot of times, repent means to grovel. That's not what it means at all. Metanoieo is the Greek word. Meta meaning after, noeo meaning to think, to think after. Which means to basically change the way you're thinking. In other words, change your assumptions about certain things in the way the world works. So, when Jesus calls us to reconsider or to repent, he's telling us, ponder how your life is going, and if it's going down the wrong road, then you need to rethink things and turn and go a different direction. We do that as individuals, but we do that collectively too, within a community or within a society. And the passage I read out of Isaiah 55, that's the idea behind it. When uh, Isaiah the prophet says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. In other words, God has a greater vision than we do. And when he tells us something, we might challenge the assumptions that's being told to us, but he has greater insight. So constantly God is calling us to recalibrate. So the warnings of Jesus in many respects is the wisdom of Jesus that is needed to recalibrate our current path, our current route. So there has been an expectation since the time of Jesus that we are living in the end times. We're living in the last days right? We've been hearing that, well, at least I've been hearing that since the 1970s. So there was a slew of books that were written in the 1970s that felt that Jesus was coming soon, that the world was coming to an end. Uh, passages, I mean, not passages, but books like The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and other individuals like that. Well, here we are now, you know, 40-some years later, and things are still just kind of going in cycles. We are always living in the last days in a symbolic sense. In other words, we're always living at the end of things. Let me illustrate. So if there was someone here in the congregation that was in the uh, military back during World War II, he lived at the end of World War II. In other words, he lived at the end of things and the start of something new. 
The same with a soldier during the Vietnam War. He lived through that. He came to the end of it, and he was at the dawn of something new. Same with the Afghanistan War. I've used the same illustration, but we could do that with a lot of things. And that is, you come to the end of the Iron Age. You come to the end of the Bronze Age. You come to the end of these things, and you are at the dawn of something else that is yet to come. In We are always at the end of something and ready for the dawn of something new. So those of us that are living in this day and age in 2022, we have lived through a certain age and technology has changed so much that we were at the beginning of something new. And some of us adapted and some of us are still adapting, right? Because it's a change and we've had to repent, we've had to reconsider it, we had to reroute a little bit. So what I'm trying to say is, in the warnings of Jesus, he's talking about the end of the age and the beginning of a new dawn. So at the beginning of a new dawn comes the beginning of the potential of a new tomorrow as well. What happens at the end is a judgment on what has already happened. So when we come to the end of something, and you look back on World War II, you look back on the Vietnam War, you look back on the war in Afghanistan, if we could do it over again, we might do some things differently. Does that make sense? So you come to an end of that era, and you look back and you go, okay, judgment has come in the form of an evaluation of how things went during that time and what needed to change for the new horizon. So those judgments come by way of social commentary, but mostly comes through historians who look back on an age and they see what was positive and they see what was negative. So when we think of Judgment Day, let's not just think of some time when we're at the pearly gates, and there's St. Peter up there. Let's think of Judgment Day in the sense of we're coming to the end of something, and then we have to live with the consequences of how things went, okay? So Judgment Day is when the consequences, whether good or bad, finally arrive, and they are manifested for what they are. Judgment Day is when we know that which is hidden becomes known, and that which is superior and that which is inferior reveal the path that we are taking. So when we think of it in these terms, we come to this passage here in Luke chapter 13. And there is a statement by Jesus here when he is talking about what's happened to people. He's talking a little bit about some consequences. The first one is... A, a consequence of a, a rebellion. So it, it says here, at that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So in, in Jewish history, there has always been a smaller segment of the Jewish population that always felt that the only way that they're going to get out from under Roman rule is to resist it and to revolt against it. And one of the jobs of the governors, like Pilate, was to always 
submit, uh, make those people submit and to squelch the uprising. So evidently, at one time, what this reference is uh, talking about is there was a small group of Jewish revolutionaries that came into Jerusalem and they were offering up sacrifices in the temple and they decided that they were going to lead a revolution against the Roman Empire. Well, when they did so, Pilate sent out a delegation of soldiers to kill them. And here Jesus is told uh, about that and he knows about it. And what we find is that he he then talks about something else, which is what Jesus often does. Now, I find it fascinating in verse 1 that the way this is evaluated, when you look back on what happened, is it says that the blood of these revolutionaries was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices that were being offered. Jesus asked a question, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also perish as they did. Now, he's not talking about their motivation. He wanted, they wanted their people to be free. However, in revolting against the Roman Empire, that was a stupid decision. You're never, ever, ever going to beat the Roman Empire, Right? They're just too big, they're too massive. So he says, you know what, if you continue to do this, if you continue to revolt against the Roman Empire, you too will perish even as they did. And then he switches topics. He says, or how about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now this is a natural accident, okay? There was a tower that fell over and people got crushed under it. Do you think that that happened because they were worse sinners? And Jesus says, no, they're not worse sinners. But he says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will also perish as they did. Now, what he's talking about there, I think, is the type of things that can happen that is um, collateral damage. And what I mean by that is if this small group of Jewish people continue to resist against Rome, there are innocent people that are going to lose their lives. They're not holding a sword in their hand. Does that make sense? So he's talking about those that are resistors that are perish, and he's talking about those that are part of kind of a collateral damage when this constant chaos of war comes about. So this is given in much fuller detail in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says in his warning, when you see these type of things happening, I mean, run for the hills, get out of Jerusalem is what he's saying. Now, we've had over, what, six million people that have left Ukraine. They saw what was happening and they took off for safety. And that's what the advice was of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. So fast forward here. Eventually, Rome gets tired of these Jewish revolutionaries uh, revolting. So about 40 years later, Israel once again went to war with the Romans. And they felt at that time, because there were some other people that claimed to be the Messiah, they felt that God was going to lead them to victory. So finally in AD 66, Rome decides they had enough of the revolts and the revolutionaries 
And Caesar sends 80,000 people into Israel, 80,000 soldiers, highly trained soldiers, and they will lay siege to the city for months, and many, many people died. Finally, the Roman general Titus comes into Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple. He, uh, there's only one wall that is left in Jerusalem. What is that called? It's still standing, the Wailing Wall. Okay, So he destroys the temple, and Titus will say this, I hope you are now satisfied. This is from the pen of Josephus, the historian. I hope you are now satisfied with the miseries of your country. You have, ha- uh, you have not had any notion of our great power and your own great weakness. Isn't that interesting? So what he was trying to say is, you're never going to beat us militarily. It's stupid. And Jesus is warning that they are going to live out the consequences if they continue to resist. Now, Jesus is not saying that the Romans are right in their actions. That's not what he's saying. But that's not the best decision of the Jews to resist this massive military machine. Does that make sense? Okay. So the warning of Jesus in Luke chapter 13 has a contextual element to it that is very, very important. And that is... Jesus saw it on the horizon that if these people continue to push back and revolt against uh, the Roman Empire, that eventually they were going to be executed. And there were times that they would use the cross as a means of symbolic terror. There was one occasion where there were 2,000 revolutionaries that were crucified at the same time. Can you imagine seeing that on the horizon? 2,000 people being crucified. And all of that was to terrorize the people into submission. So what's going on here? Now I want to turn to the other passage that we have that I read for you out of Luke chapter 6. Now in this Sermon on the Plain, what we find is the, a promise and a prediction at the same time. So what you're going to notice here is there's four blesseds and there's four woes. So you have this in your liturgy. But what Jesus often does in his warnings is he gives both that which is positive and that which is negative. And in this case here... That which is positive is recorded in the word blessed. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those of you who weep now, blessed are you when people hate you. That's contextual too. All all these Jewish people are victims of abusive power under the Roman Empire. But there's also some woes that are given. But woe to you who are rich Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who uh, uh, are spoken well of. All of this is contextual to the first century in the sense that when you follow Jesus, you're following one that is bringing about a whole new way of looking at life. And there is this idea of promise that God will eventually put the world to rights. Lay down your sword. 
Isn't that what he told Peter in the garden, okay? So in the garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter takes a sword and tries to cut off uh, the head of the soldier. He misses. He cuts off the ear. Jesus heals the ear of the soldier, and he says, you know, put down your sword. On another occasion, he says, those who live by the sword will die by it. So the wisdom of Jesus is to think about the end of something and the beginning of something new. So we are all living at the end of something. And it's the nature of life. And the warnings of Jesus in his own context is that we're coming to the end of certain things, but there's the dawn of tomorrow. And he said to, uh, on, as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he said, oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have liked to gather you to myself like a hen does her chicks. And what he was saying is, if you would just have known the way of wisdom, if you would just have known and you would have listened to my instruction, a lot of these things could have been prevented. Sometimes we are too comfortable, I think, in the way things are, to consider a vision for a better tomorrow. But occasionally things arise to such a heat that it forces us to think differently. And so what I did was I, I thought of a song. Again, it goes back a ways. So when I first became a Christian in the 1970s, things were just coming off the Vietnam era. And it was kind of the end of that era and it was just the emergence of a new dawn. But if you back up just a few more years uh, to uh, 1964 to 1968, everything was in chaos. And what th that's what this song, The Eve of Destruction, sung by a guy by the name of Barry McGuire, who, um, who I saw in concert in a church in Akron, um, and he sang this song, and everything at that time was kind of like a warning, a warning, a warning, and that gave kind of birth to this kind of end-time fanaticism that was found in the books that were being written in the 1970s. So watch this, and I think what you'll find is it gives kind of an illustration of what I'm trying to tell you. Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me
get so mad Feels like coagulating I'm sitting here just contemplating I can't twist the truth It knows no regulation Handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. Uh, you may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and tell me. So here's what I want us to think about. I'm going to tie it all together for us. Did we survive the 1960s? Yeah. But did we learn from it? See, we're always coming to the end of something, and there's the dawn of something coming, but are we carrying the same mistakes into the next thing that's coming? It seems to me that Jesus in his warnings is always getting us, giving us a picture of a new possibility if we will rethink things. So we've come from the 60s and the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and it just seems, yeah, that comes to an end, but then we go back into the same cycle of things. The call of Jesus is for his people to rise above the end of things to step into the dawn of a new tomorrow. And that calls for being instructed by Jesus and learning of a new way of living. So here's the way I I want to summarize this. I know I've been kind of all over the place here today. That's just the way the sermon kind of worked itself out. We are always standing on the eve of destruction or the dawn of construction, and a lot of that is based on our instruction. So if we take Jesus seriously, what we find is that he shows a new way forward, a new way of living, a new way of approaching humanity, and if we can get others to see that vision and to put aside the eve of destruction that they are always living in, or always living in the past, always living at the end of something, rather than stepping into a better vision of a new era, 
then what we'll find is that we'll always be doing the same old thing. But if we can learn from Jesus and step into tomorrow and the new era, there is a better way to live. That's the point. So we don't have to be on the eve of destruction, but we do need to learn through instruction. And if that, if that is done, then a new world could be constructed. And I think that's what much of the warning passages of Jesus is about. So the question is, as we close, where do we want to live? Do we want to always live at the end of something and think that we're always on the eve of destruction? Or do we want to be individuals that live at the beginning of a new dawn and stepping into that and creating a better world? And I think that we make those choices individually, but collectively too. And I think that's something we need to pray for on a constant basis is um, other people to catch that vision so that tomorrow will be better than today and tomorrow's era will be better than the one that we just stepped out of. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Just stand with me as we close. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, we heed your prophetic ministry. Lord, move us out of our woeful self-satisfaction into a world of new possibilities. Help us to see that we are living at the end of something, but you are faithful to bring in something new. Help us to repent, to rethink, to re-envision, to recalibrate. Lord, help us in our brokenness. Forgive us for our brokenness. And open us up to new possibilities. For all of us really do ache for a new world to come. A world that is set right. That honors other people. Values them. Respects their dignity. And fights for fairness and justice. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, the prophet. Amen. Thanks everyone. Have a great week.